Well, good morning, everybody. We just had congregational prayer, so that was awesome. So we are in our New Year 2013 series called, anybody know? Win the Day. Win the Day, with the idea that if we can just win today for Jesus, in our thoughts, actions, lifestyles, and then tomorrow get up and win the day for him again, just one day at a time, that we can set our hearts on that path of sanctification, right? That if we can just take today, because most everybody can do something for one day, right? Whether it's dieting or fasting or exercising or doing a budget or whatever, most people can do it for one single day. So that's all that we're focusing on is that one step of faith that God calls us to do, one, to win one day for him. And then when we lay our heads on our pillows tonight, and then we wake up in the morning, we do what? We win one more day for God. And we just focus on that one day. In fact, the Bible says, don't worry about tomorrow. And I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Today has enough troubles of its own. So let's just focus on today and win today, right? Don't worry about tomorrow. God's got that in his hands. And when tomorrow comes, we'll deal with that. But let's just win today. That whatever happens to us, whatever circumstance, situation, individuals, people, whatever happens today, let's filter it through God and our salvation in the Bible and just live for God for one day. And we're doing that with the mindset of habit change that we focused uh, in this series on like seven habits that if we can change those habits in our lives of how we look at things, how we think about things, how we do things, that if we can change those and just build on that, it's like that domino effect that as we get that domino effect going, one topples over the next, the next thing you know, our habits are just focused around God and we're living daily for God and just not even thinking about it per se, that it's so much a part of our life because we've made positive changes for God. Well, today, as always, we have a fun title for today's message called Cut the Rope. And for all those that are watching online or listening online or here in person, you know we always have a little fun with this little C word called conviction, right? So today's message is about change. Now you all love change, right? I mean, when things change at work, when things change at home, everybody's always happy, right? Well, the reality for all of us this morning as we even start is that God is about change. Think about it. When you come to salvation, what does God do to your life? He changes it. When he returns in the air and we are caught up with him, what does he do with our life and our physical bodies? He changes it. And on our tombstones, from our birth date to our death date, physically, that gap in between the two dates, what does God hope to do with us? To change us. The hard part about that change is what? It's right now. It's, it's in our face. It's right here in the moment today that God is saying, I want to change you more into my likeness. I want to change you for the better. I want to change you to be all that I created and made you to be before you even were. Now, we like that end result, don't we? It's the getting there that we have trouble with, right? But that's what we're focusing on today because God is about change. 
even when Christ was ministering for those three years, his message was the gospel, the good news message, but the whole message was about what? Change. You've got to change. Get out of the old ways, the old habits, the ruts you're in, the worldly things, the mindset. You've got to change, to renew your mind, to soften your heart, to live daily, to win today for God. So it's about change. And that's not a bad thing. It's really a good thing because, again, we like the end result, right? It's the getting there. Here's the good news, kids. If you are in the family of God, if you have been redeemed through Jesus Christ and Christ alone, he doesn't leave you hanging. He gives you the Holy Spirit to go with you, to enable you, to empower you to do this change. God doesn't just abandon you and say, good luck. We joke about at my work that the old way of, of uh, learning the job was this. They would give us a laptop and they'd say, hey, Go out and sell. If you do good, you'll have a job. If you don't, we'll fire you and you'll starve. There really wasn't a lot of training at that time. It's like, here's the tools, go out and do it. And if you're good, you'll be okay. If not, you'll suffer. The good news of the gospel is Christ does not treat us that way. He changes us in salvation. He says, I wanna change you even more, but I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit to accomplish everything that I'm asking you to do. And that's good news, right? We are not alone. It's always good to have a buddy there, right? I mean, first rule of going out in the, in, in the woods and the forest is the buddy system, right? Have a buddy. We have a buddy that is God himself and the Holy Spirit that is with us constantly. So we are focusing on today on cutting the rope, the idea that, as we said earlier in the announcements, that sometimes we, we hang ourselves with a rope of stress. We hang ourselves with a rope of guilt. We hang ourselves with a rope of complacency. We just kind of bind ourselves up sometimes, don't we? And today's message is all focused on cut the rope. Now, doesn't that sound fun? Cut the rope. And the idea that sometimes we need to cut those things that are holding us back from faith and step out in faith. A rope holds you back, doesn't it? Whether we're hanging by it or it's pulling us back, ropes hinder us from moving forward. And what we're focusing on is cutting that rope that is holding us back, whatever rope it is you're dealing with, and stepping out in faith into a whole new realm. 1853, good year. Some of you remember it, right? Awesome year. 1853, America hosted the first World Fair in New York City. And the organizers built this massive, elaborate ex exhibition hall called the Crystal Palace. And it was to showcase, back in 1853, the latest and greatest inventions. Because you remember at this time, it was industrial America, and inventions were coming through like crazy. The so-called modern society, and it was new and exciting, and there were thousands of new things to see. Well, in this Crystal Palace, in the first World Fair in New York City, enter a man named Elisha Otis. Now, you may not know Elisha Otis, but you do. Ken does. He's not his head going, I know where you're going, John. <laughs> Elisha Otis stole the show 
at the 1953 World's Fair by pulling off the stunt of all ages at the time. This was even better than a magic show by Houdini. Otis was the inventor of the elevator safety brake. But he had a hard time selling his idea to general contractors and builders because they simply didn't trust the fact that you load 20 people on a box with a rope, you push a lever, and what happens to the box? It doesn't go to ground zero, right? So he had a terrible time with his great invention convincing builders to incorporate the elevator. So here's what Otis did. Smart man, crazy man. You pick, but here's what he did. Otis built a platform to the extreme very top of the Crystal Palace. And then on top of that, where the ropes went through on the pulleys, he placed a man with an axe above him. And when everybody had come into the Crystal Palace, Otis yelled out loud enough for everyone below the sea, cut the rope! And guess what? Everybody looked up, waiting to see what? A tragedy. And the Axeman raised the axe and brought it down and cut the rope and whoo, down the elevator went. Four feet. That was it. The elevator brake stopped the platform and Otis was safe. And Otis cried out, all is safe, ladies and gentlemen, all is safe. The sales pitch worked. When Elisha Otis cut the rope that day, in New York City, there were only a few buildings taller than five feet or five stories tall. Do you know why? Number one, nobody wanted to take the stairs beyond five floors. Have you ever gone up and down stairs in a building? I mean, about one floor is good enough for me, right? Five floors is a lot to go, so don't build a building higher. Number two, people didn't trust elevators because their fear was what? You'd raise the elevator up and somewhere it would what? Come down and nothing would stop it. Well, that was 1853. By 1908, there were 538 buildings in New York City that qualified as skyscrapers. And you know why? Because they had an elevator. And they trusted the safety brake on that elevator not to let them fall to their death. According to the Otis Elevator Company, in current times, the equivalent of the world's population rides an, ele an Otis elevator every three days. It's a lot of people. So I think Otis turned the world upside down, right? So what's the application for us? Tara's back are going, oh, don't go there. Uh-uh, don't do that, John. Here's the application. God calls us to step out in faith, to cut the rope that is holding us back, that is binding us, that is wrapped around us, that is holding us back, and to step out in faith. What's our fear when we step out in faith? That we're going to fall. And we're going to fall long and hard and deep, and it's going to hurt. Right? Isn't that really our fear? That if I speak out, 
oh my gosh, what will they think? If I live this way, what will the neighbors be saying? If I do this and change my lifestyle, what will happen? You see, the thing that keeps us back, the real rope that is holding us back, is what? Fear. That's really the rope. There's a beautiful illustration in the Old Testament about three dudes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that are tempted by a rope of fear. Because they're told if they don't bow down to a certain golden idol of the current leader, they will what? They'll be killed. Well, most peepins, people, even sometimes sadly Christians, are scared to death of death. And they had to cut the rope of fear to say, we will honor God because he says, bow down to no idol. And here's the beautiful picture that ties into our challenge today. They were thrown into a fiery furnace, and the Bible tells us that the furnace was heated to seven times its normal heat. And when they were thrown in the furnace, do you know the only thing that burned up? It was the ropes that bound them. That's a beautiful picture for us today, right? So as we dive in this morning, here's my question. What is the rope, or what are the ropes of fear that are binding you and holding you back today? Y'all know what it is. We'll do a survey after church, so I'll you know, get all that information. We'll talk about it later, but you know what it is that holds you back. What causes you to to freeze, to not move forward in faith, to not take that step of faith. And today we want to talk about God wanting you to cut that rope and step out in faith because God has a safety break that he will not let you fall. In fact, Jesus even said about the apostles and about us, he thanks his Father in heaven because he knows that he will not lose a single individual that belongs to him. So you can be safe of this mentally, but if you step out in faith, God won't let you fall beyond what you can handle and what he's created you to do. Now that's mental. Where do we need to apply that? In our heart and living out. There comes a moment when we have to cut the rope. And hear this, this is kind of scary in the sermon, but if you're taking notes, hear these, hear these five words. Playing it safe is risky. Do you know that? Playing it safe is risky. The greatest risk you can take actually in life is taking no risks, no step of faith. Do you know why? Because you don't go nowhere. You don't do nothing. You don't change anything. You just sit there like a bump on a log and you do That's why risk, risking nothing is scarier than risking everything. Because when we risk nothing, we are stagnant, we're a bump in a log, and nothing changes. And some people are like, hey, I want that. Well, if you look down the road, you don't want that. You don't want that change where you don't change anything in your lifestyle, especially as a Christian, because God is about change. It's positive change. It's good change. God doesn't want us to stay where we are. He loves us so much to accept us for who we are when we come to salvation, but then to change us into who he created us to be.
And that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But to do that, we have to take risks. Playing it safe maintains the status quo. But in the long run, that is not a good thing at all. Number two, playing it safe leads to what psychologists call inaction regrets. You ever have an action regret? You're like, I don't know, John, is there a virus for that? Or what is that? I don't even know what an action regret is. Here's what an action regret is. According to psychologist Tom Goldich, 84% 84 of the regrets that we will have when we die are about what we would have, should have, and could have done. 84% of people that have regrets, when they talk about their regrets on their deathbed or when they're dying, they're in action regrets about everything they wish they would have done, could have done, or should have done. They known they could have done it and they didn't what? Do it. That's why playing it safe is risky. Christians, God loves you too much that on your deathbed, he doesn't want you to have reaction regrets. He wants you to be able to lay on your bed or wherever you are and say, you know what? I won the day for Christ one day at a time. Day after day, I won the day for Christ. I stepped out in faith. I cut the rope of fear that held me back and bound me. And I lived for Jesus. And it was a good life. As the Apostle Paul said, I have accomplished that which Christ has called me to do. I have won the race. I have fought the good fight. And that's why we come to today with the reality of change is a good thing because playing it safe is risky. Because I want you on your deathbed someday, whenever that is, to be able to say, I lived for Jesus Christ and it was a good life. Isn't that worthwhile in itself? That's where we want to be. So we're going to end up in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 35, if you want to dig there. And as you're going to Mark 4, verse 35, I'll share with you a little bit more. Mark 4, verse 35. What did I say? You said a I said, well, you know, I'm just seeing who's listening, so thank you. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Georgetown professor Cal Newport in his book, Deep Works, talks about the concept of grand gestures grand gestures and it takes a few different forms when we talk about a grand gesture in life it can be a romantic gesture like a young man bending down on one knee before his future bride and opening up a little box and proposing to her that's a grand gesture that changes things doesn't it a grand gesture changes things it can be like taking a picture before you decide to do that thing called a diet so that you have the before and the after picture to show your progress that changes things it can be a creative grand gesture like a hundred plus years ago when missionaries knew that they were on a one-way mission trip to go into the mission field so catch this they would load their luggage in a coffin to ship over to the other country because they knew they would not be returning a grand gesture changes things. A grand gesture is a defining decision. And when we cut the rope of fear in our lives, the things that bind us, 
We take one step of faith. That is a grand gesture that changes things. I've shared with you before as I've gone bungee jumping. Do you know how many steps it takes to bungee jump? Just one. <laughs> you know how many steps it takes to be committed in a bungee jump? Just one. One good step of faith off a perfectly good platform down to the empty space below. It just takes one grand gesture of one step. And that is all that God is asking you to do today in cutting one rope. Make a grand gesture in your life that changes things. Make it personal. October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther posted the 95 theses on the doors of the castle church. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat as a black woman in Montgomery, Alabama. On May 25th, 1961, President John F. Kennedy said we would have a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Those are pretty bold statements, aren't they? Have you ever heard about those statements in your history classes and in school? Did they change a culture? Did they change lives? Absolutely. Any way you slice it or dice it, a grand gesture, a single step of faith of cutting the rope changes things, whether it's the Protestant Revolution in Reformation and Church, the Civil Rights Movement, or the Space Race. When it comes to goal setting and problem solving and habit breaking, grand gestures are one small leap and one giant leap because they were a point of no return. If you're on a bungee jumping platform and you make one grand gesture of one step, you cut the rope. Well, don't cut the rope. That would be bad on there. But you step out, it suddenly changes things, doesn't it? And there is no going back. I mean, you may see videos on YouTube of people after they take that step of faith trying to reach back and grab the platform, but honey, it is done. There is no going back. Grand gestures change things. And grand gestures are in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Noah builds a really big boat in a desert where it doesn't rain. Is that a grand gesture? Yeah. Abraham puts his only son Isaac on the altar as a sacrifice. When God promised he would be a father of a multitude and that's his only son. The Israelites circled Jericho for seven days in a very God-calculated, very humanly stupid attempt to overcome the city. Beniah changes chases a lion into a pit on a snowy day in 2 Samuel 23 and kills it. I haven't done that one on my bucket list yet. Esther does a three-day fast to seek God's will. Elisha burns his plowing equipment. Ezekiel sleeps on his side for 390 days as a witness to the nation of God's people. James and John drop their nets and follow a man that says, Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter simply gets out of the boat. Zacchaeus climbs a sycamore tree. Paul shaves his head. 
is a sign of dedication. The Ephesians build a bonfire and burn all their scrolls. Those are all grand gestures, aren't they? But that's the tip of the iceberg. Those are tipping points. In fact, those are the days that we talked about in the first two messages of our series. Those are days, those are hours, those are moments when decades happen. Aren't they? Those are days, moments, hours when decades happen in a moment because they change things forever. They're inciting incidents. They are defining moments of no return. Each one of them in their own way cut the rope. For some, it was a huge moment. For others, the pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of, of change. And that may be where it hits a lot of Americans. The pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of taking a risk. One way or another, there comes a moment as a Christian, you and I need to cut those ropes of fear. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Here's where our biblical application story starts. Mark 4, 35, it says, When evening came, Jesus says to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. If you've been in church for a while, you know this story, right? They're with the crowds. Jesus says, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. It's getting nighttime. You shouldn't have a boat on the lake on nighttime. But if Jesus says go, we're going to go. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. And these boys, different than our current motors, have to row or sail the entire place, the entire lake over there. And like I said, being on a lake at night is worse than being on a lake at day. Why? Because you can't see nothing. You can't see where you're going. You can't see where you've been. Once you get away from the shore, you're going either 13 miles north, 8 miles wide. It's all just black and it's all water. And the unknown is ever-present, isn't it? Even for fishermen. Verse 36. Leaving the crowd behind. Okay, let's do a little sermon in a sermon. You like that? Sermon in a sermon. Leaving the crowd behind. Sometimes when we have to cut the rope, you and I have to leave the crowd behind to get ourselves in the might right in the might right might in the right mindset to trust God enough in faith to overcome our fear. How do you do that? Well, almost every American is suffering from something called information overload. Information overload. Do you ever see if you're out somewhere in public? And sometimes even with your family, that if there is any idle time, what do people do? They gotta grab their phone and start looking at it. Why? They didn't do that a hundred years ago. But we have to have it. There are actual psychological disease or psychological conditions now for people that can't have access to social media because nowadays they freak out. It hasn't been that way for thousands of years. This is a new epidemic. It's current. It's within our generations. The computers are relatively new. And in one generation, we have become so accustomed to information overload, we can't get rid of it. That's like the crowds with Jesus. You imagine a crowd of some 20,000 people. Bible talks about 4,000 men, 5,000 men, add a wife, add two kids. You got 20, 30,000 people. 
If you're in a crowd, there's a lot of information and noises and sounds and demands and needs going on, right? Kind of sounds like modern day society, right? There's never enough time to get things done. There's too many needs. I just can't handle them. And Jesus says, leaving the crowds behind. We are bombarded with news media, fake news, infomercials. We were talking with Justin last night, and I've known this before, but he, he came across that, that do you realize that the United States and New Zealand are the only countries in the world that have advertisements that tell you what medicine you should go and tell your doctor that you need? We're the only two countries in the world. And those medications sell like crazy because they tell us we should go do this. We're telling the doctor what medication we need. We've got advertisers vying for attention. We've got social media algorithms that as soon as we look at something online or on our phone, what kind of things bombard our phone and internet after that? The very thing you looked up? We've got noise everywhere. Neon signs, billboards, moving signs. You walk in New York, the whole wall of buildings are advertisements and news media. One person has put it this way, that all of these social media nowadays is like eating from the tree of good and evil. And he says, I'm not convinced that our minds were designed to have that capacity to know everything all the time, instantly, right here and right now. Now, I'm not telling you to go bury your head in the sand and go be a hermit and live in a cave out in West Wendover. It's cold out there and it's damp. Don't do that. But we need to do this. Sometimes we need to step away from the media. Turn our phones off for a day or a weekend. We need to keep the TV off, shut the radio off, and spend that time in prayer because the news that we hear on social media, we should be praying about. Carl Barth said it this way, and this is back in the day of newspapers, so it's a few decades old, but it still hits today. Carl Barth, the great theologian said, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret your newspaper through your Bible, not the other way around. He says, it's not bad to know what's going on in the world, but interpret the world through what you get from the Bible, not the other way around. Because if we get it backwards and we interpret the Bible by what we see and hear in the media, we are going to be a messed up group, which half the nation is already there, right? They interpret God's word through what they see on social media, on their phones, on TikTok, on, on Google, whatever they're told in good compliance they believe and they don't have the word of god as the authority in their life and that's messed up let me give you an example the average person y'all average no. no you're above average the average person spends 142 minutes a day on some form of social media 142 minutes that's 15 percent of your waking hours do you know that is that how you want to spend your life every day? Is 15% of your waking hours on social media? When's the last time you shut that white noise out and shut everything down for a weekend? Watch no TV, no phone calls, no podcast, no TikTok, 
no Google, no radio, and just had a weekend of solace. Where Jesus said, leaving the crowds behind, we said, leaving the social white noise behind. I'm going to a place, I take a break. You know, it's really hard to hear the Holy Spirit when we have so many other distractions in our lives, isn't it? That's why Jesus gave that example of, we gotta step away from the crowds because there's something we need to hear and something we need to do and something in our lives we need to change to grow. Verse 36 of Mark 4, 36 and 37, that says, leaving the crowds behind, they took Jesus along and just as it was, they were in the boat. And there were also other boats with them, but soon a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So let's add, let's add to the topography and chronology of the Bible. See, Galilee's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's also 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains and hills called the Golden Heights, which they get to 25,000 feet. And the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, which means this. When the wind blows down those foothills, what happens? It goes crazy. My closest example is Bear Lake. You ever been to Bear Lake when the winds come up? <laughs> there's boats crashing together, and there's waves everywhere, and people are just freaking out, white-knuckling it to get back to the shore? Bear Lake is a good example for us, because when the wind comes up at Bear Lake, you got waves everywhere. And the Bible tells us here in verse 37 that the waves came up with the squall, the wind that was so bad, the waves were coming over the boat that it was nearly swamped. So picture that, nearly swamped. What does a boat have to do to be nearly swamped? It's gotta be filled with water. That's how bad the waves were crashing over. Verse 38, the first part. And Jesus was in the stern doing what? Sleeping on a cushion. Now, if I ran for president, I think one of the first national things I would do is think we should have nap time. Jesus had nap time. He's sleeping on a cushion. You know, NASA found a study that a 26-minute nap a day increases productivity by 34%. Depending on your circadian rhythm and where that is, if you take a 26-minute nap, 34% improvement in your daily function? Wow. Maybe you should do that. Well, I think you should do it just because Jesus did. Don't you even follow his example? Jesus went in and took a nap while they're struggling on the boat and, and oaring and, and screaming and freaking out. And Jesus says, ah, big night tonight. Got to get my rest. Got to take a power nap. Because he was going to do a miracle when he woke up. Got to prepare. Nap time. Got to increase that productivity. Verse 38, the second part. The, disciple, the disciples woke Jesus up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? I find this funny. You know why? Jesus is sleeping, so evidently he's not bothered by the whole thing going on, right? He's getting his power nap, so he's prepared for the miracle that's about to come. He's calm as a cucumber out on the ocean sea while the boat's filling up with water. And the disciples are quick to play the blame game. Did you ever notice that in here? This is what they're doing. They're playing the blame game. Jesus, don't you care if we drown? It's kind of like, well, what's wrong with you? 
we are awfully quick to attribute wrong motives to those that do things different than us, aren't we? To play the blame game, Tara and Christian and I were talking in the car about a situation that sometimes when somebody says they're confronted with truth, what's the first thing they do back? Oh yeah, well what about you? It's like not even deal with the issue, just turn the issue around and attack you back, right? Isn't that human nature? We are so quick to do the blame game. And here's what the disciples do with Jesus. They play the blame game like, Jesus, come on, you called us. Don't you care that we're going to drown? Are you so far off that you don't care about us that you're sleeping and taking a nap? Totally wrong motives, totally wrong attitude, bad place to go. So, simple message, don't play the game, blame game. The Bible says the tongue is a small part of the body, but it can set on what on fire? Forest fires. So when we're confronted, the, one of the challenges is when we cut the rope, don't just speak back. Stop those lips from opening up. Filter it through God's word and God's spirit. Cry out, Holy Spirit, control my mouth because I can't, and then speak in love. Disciples are blaming Jesus because they think they're going to die and he doesn't care. And it's his fault because he's the one that said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. So it must be his fault, right? And Jesus doesn't even care. He's taking a nap. How rude. Well, let's look at it from Jesus's point. Instead of the apostles with their terribly wrong motives about self-preservation and, and self-entitlement. What's Jesus doing? Sleeping. He knows he's fine. He knows it's not his time yet. And yet the disciples are freaking out because their focus is on Christ, but in the wrong way. What Jesus is giving us in this example, when, when storms in life come, instead of having that rope of fear binding us up, we gotta stay humble and stay hungry for the Holy Spirit. We gotta stay calm and carry on, right? Not get riled up, not let it shake and rock our world. We gotta stay in our lane in that short narrow path of Christianity, and we gotta stay the course. A couple questions reflecting back on our sermon within a sermon as we're talking about cutting the rope and about social media. This is the part of the message that if you really think you need to, put the earplugs in. This is the part of the message that we all love because it's realization, it's looking in the mirror, and it's practical application. Are you ready? How much of what you say is just simply regurgitation of what you're watching or what you're hearing on some form of social media? Question number two. How much of what you're saying is a recitation of the revelation of God's word that he showed you this morning? Which source flows freely from your mouth? The stuff you hear on social media or the word of God? That's convicting, isn't it? I'm totally convicted because I know which side I tend to be on, unless I check myself. What should it be? The Bible says we are to encourage one another as long as today is called today. And as far as I know, today is still called today. We are to be joyful in how many circumstances? All. We are to be humble when? Always. To rely on the Holy Spirit? 
always. We are to bless others always. Verse 39 says that Jesus woke up from his nap, freaked out, grabbed an order, and tried swimming like crazy. Yes? No? It says Jesus, Jesus woke up and started grabbing a bucket and bailing out the boat that was filling up with water. Nope. It says Jesus woke up and started freaking out along with the apostles. Nope. Verse 39 says this. When Jesus got up from sleeping, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Peace, be still, and the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Now, for us of us here, hearing this message or in this room right now, we suffer from hindsight bias because we know the story so well, right? We know how it ends, so it doesn't impact us. I want you to stop that and get rid of the hindsight bias for 30 seconds and realize you're one of the disciples in the boat. It's nighttime. You're in pitch black dark. The waves are beating up over the boat. It's rocking. You're probably a little seasick. You're not doing so well. You're completely drenched in the cold, wet, and rain. The waves are pounding over the boat. The boat is filling up. You're bailing as fast as you can. The waves are beating you. Jesus is sleeping. You think you're going down in the middle of the water, in the middle of the lake. And to the people of that time, when you went down to the depths of the darkness of the sea, that's where hell was. This is not a good moment. And the rope of fear is strangling them, isn't it? All this to say, when Jesus gets up, he doesn't freak out. He calmly gets up, and he, I can just see him. Maybe it's like Hollywood where he puts his hands out. I don't know. But the Bible just tells us that Jesus got up and rebuked the waves. Maybe he just sat there with his arms kind of like this or like this or like this. And he says, peace. Now picture you're one of the disciples, the apostles in the boat, with all this craziness going on, building up and building up, and the longer it goes on, the more fearful you are. Jesus gets up, and within three seconds, the entire world changes. The sea is calm, there's no waves, the boat's not rocking, and it's peaceful. See the image? Living our life without Christ, living our life in chaos and social media, living our life in fear of the future or what's going to happen and all this stuff. And when Jesus speaks, speaks in our life and says, peace be still, we go into a serene world of calmness where the lake is like glass. You can hear anything across the waters and it's peaceful. Major contrast, isn't it? That's the green fields and the still waters that Jesus wants to give you and I when we cut that rope of fear and we trust in him. He says this in our lives, peace, be still, and it's calm. How do we cut the rope? First, we've got to be entrenched more in the Word of God than we are social media and what the world tells us. So we can filter that social media and that news through the Bible. Second, we've got to put on the full armor of God, as the, as the Word says, because the battle is not carnal. It's not of this world. The battle is a spiritual battle, so we've got to fight it in a spiritual way. Third, we've got to trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit to fight the battle with and for us. And then we have to be obedient to what God calls us to do. How do we do that? We rebuke hate 
with love. We rebuke pride with humility. We rebuke, rebuke cursing with a blessing. We rebuke lies with a truth. We rebuke injustice with righteousness. We rebuke, rebuke racism with repentance and reconciliation. We rebuke cancel culture and counterculture with the grace and the word of God. And we do it based on the full word of God in context. In context. In other words, when something comes and hits us out of our realm, when that storm hits us, we don't go AWOL. Right? The Bible tells us we have the authority in Jesus Christ to do amazing things. It says we have the authority to move mountains. We have the authority over evil spirits. We have the authority against the powers and principalities that authority in Christ, right? But the Bible says we have that. It goes on in Matthew 18, 18 to say this, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And the counter is true also. What you free on earth will be freed. But here's the thing about this authority and power that I'm not going to go crazy radical on you with some name and claim it thing. Whatever God calls us to do and pray for and act, it has to be in the will of God and solely for the glory of God. That's the two parameters when you go to do some kind of miracle for God. And I think the reason we don't see more miracles in our lives, especially in the United States, for God is lack of faith and wrong motives. Because James 4, 3 tells us that when we pray, we should pray for things when we're not praying. He says, too, when you pray and you don't get it, you do so because you pray with the wrong motives. You see, our wrong motives are this. Well, I want to do the miracle and do this and give a little glory to God and a lot of glory to me. Right? we got to turn that around. Actually, we got to eliminate that and say, we're going to give all the glory to God and none of the glory to me. Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not by our might or strength or power. It's through the strength and power of Jesus Christ. So, back to grand gestures and doing miracles and doing amazing things and cutting the rope of fear in our lives. Two kinds of grand gestures we'll talk about that you need to take a step of faith today and two ways to cut the rope. First kind of grand gesture is what I call the Field of Dreams grand gesture. Remember that movie? If you build it, they will come. Noah built an ark and God did the rest. He brought the animals, he brought the people that he was going to save, and even in the end, when the ark was closed up, and when it was too late, people realized the truth was the truth. No matter how they disagreed with it, the people came too, didn't they? It's like Abraham making the move from his homeland to where God was leading him, and he didn't even know where God was taking him. It's like the little boy in the 20, 000, a crowd of 20,000 people, and it's hungry, and he gives up his only meal to the apostles and to Jesus to hopefully feed the 5,000. Man, when you're hungry, to give up a meal is asking a lot, isn't it? So the first kind of grand gesture is do something big. The second I would call is enough is enough, grand gesture. Enough is enough. In other words, when you hit a point of no return, whether it's now or never, it's saying, you know what, I have been doing this and today's the day because enough is enough. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of thinking this way and acting this way. 
Enough is enough. It's when David made a decision to fight Goliath. You are mocking my God and God's people, and that's enough. That will no longer happen. It's when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the 90-foot statue of Nebuchadnezzar that they're like, my God, whether he lets me live or not, is my God, and dude, you are not, and I will not bow down to an idol, no matter what you have to do to me, enough is enough. It's Jesus cursing the barren fig tree because it, what, produced no fruit. Take that, hold on to that for a minute. I said no change is risky at the beginning of the sermon, right? Jesus curses the fig tree and it dies. Do you know why? No fruit. It would not change. It wanted to keep the status quo and stay the same it was. So it would not bear fruit. It would not change. And because of that, it's cursed. You see, living the status quo is risky in the kingdom of God. You and I got to be bearing fruit. And we only bear fruit, how? By changing. So, field of dreams, grand gestures, and enough is enough grand gestures. So how do we cut the rope? First, you got to kneel down. You got to get your spiritual position right. You got to kneel down to the feet of God and be in God's will. It's all about God's will. Even if it's going to be uncomfortable and you don't like it because God knows the end, right? We kneel down at the foot of, of, of the throne of grace where Jesus Christ is, and we say, Lord, your will, not mine. Your will. And Lord, if I have to suffer to attain your will, let me suffer well. Job had to suffer for God's will, and the dude did nothing wrong. Just because you suffer doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. God may be using you to suffer well, to be an example of Christians, that even when you suffer, you're not angry at God or the world. You're joyful. Your marriage is bad, you may have to go to marriage counseling whether you like it or not. If you can't get past some, some grief or some thing in the past, you may have to go to grief counseling whether you want to or not. If you're way out of shape, you may have to get in shape for God to glorify him. If you're living 100% off of Uncle Sam, you may have to get a job to help subsidize. Those are things people don't want to hear, aren't they? But they're true. So you got to kneel down, and if God says, this is my will for you, then we high-five and say, amen, Jesus. I will be joyful in this, whether it seems good or not, whether I want to do this or not, because I know in the end, your will and your way for me is to minister to others and to glorify you and to change my life into goodness. Tara talks a lot about Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know her, she had a diving accident when she was really, really young, broke her back, and she's been a paraplegic ever since then. Well, the worldly thing would be what? Be angry at the world, be angry at God for allowing him to do that, be angry at everybody. Well, God changed her. She's married, has a great husband. She has a phenomenal ministry. She does painting, and she's a paraplegic. She paints with her mouth. And she ministers to people saying, no matter what happens to you, God has good in it and for it if you just trust him. And Johnny Erickson Tata has a worldwide ministry because in her bad day, 
She trusted God, and God gave her a worldwide ministry for him. You and I are 100% healthy. Do you and I have a worldwide ministry for God? Nope. But she chose to suffer well, to take what God gave her, rejoice in it, and say, let me tell you how good God is and what he can do in any situation for my good and his glory. Number two, after you kneel down, you got to stand up. You got to stand up for your relationship with Jesus. You got to speak out, confess. And here's where it gets challenging. You got to refuse to shut your mouth at work or in public when people put God down. You got to be in church. You got to serve. You got to tithe. You got to be involved. You got to be where God wants you to be wholeheartedly instead of where you want to be. about repentance in our own lives that's what cutting the rope is really about and you know where repentance or, or excuse me let me start again it's about revival in our lives when you cut the rope and you take the step of faith you make a grand gesture you enter revival because it changes things forever do you know where revival really begins Minnesota <laughs> North Dakota Asia where does revival really begin not out there. Not with this person or that person or the pastor or the evangelist. Revival begins with you and me, one person, individually, who bends the knee to God and stands up for God and takes a grand gesture of statement, cuts the rope, and steps out in God forever. Rodney Gypsy Smith was a man born in the outskirts of London in 1860. He never got a formal education, and yet, because of his faith and his outspeaking voice for God, he, he lectured in Harvard University when Harvard was still a godly school. He was invited by two presidents to give input on godly leading of the nation. He crossed the Atlantic 45 times preaching the gospel to millions of people, and he never preached without at least one person to come, coming to salvation. Gypsy was a powerful man used by God, and wherever he went, people flocked to him and said, how do you do great things for God? And here's what he said. Go home. Lock yourself in your room. Kneel down in the middle of your floor. So far, kind of follows along with the sermon, doesn't it? And with a piece of chalk, draw a big circle around yourself. And there, when you are there in that circle on your knees by yourself, pray fervently and brokenheartedly to God that he would start a revival within that chalk circle. That's where revival begins. That's what happens when we cut the rope of fear. Revival starts in us. Last thing, and we'll close. January 30th, 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was given a message at First Baptist Church. When he was interrupted in the middle of the message and had been told that while he was speaking, his house had been bombed. Martin Luther King goes on in his early ministry to say that when he was sitting that night at his kitchen table, or excuse me, that morning at his kitchen table, he heard a voice to him saying, Martin, do not be afraid. 
Isn't that about what cutting the rope is about? Trusting the elevator break, the godly break? Do not be afraid. And Martin Luther King Jr. said that morning before he spoke, those words came to him, Martin, do not be afraid. So after he was interrupted in his message, he went a new path, and this is what he said. You may be 38 years old as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls you out to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. And you refuse to do it because you're afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you'll lose your job. You're afraid that you'll be criticized, that you'll lose your popularity. You're afraid that somebody will stab you or shoot at you or bomb your house. So you refuse to take a stand. Well, you may go on and live until you're 90, but you're just as dead at 38 than you will be at 90. And the cessation of breathing your life is but a belated announcement of an earlier death in your spirit. Christians quit living that the purpose of this life is to live safely. Jesus called us to follow him and he called his apostles to take risks. He calls his people to take risks. But here's the beautiful thing about a risk in Jesus Christ to step in faith, cutting a rope of fear, is that God's got a safety break that won't let us fall to our destruction. And that's where we have the confidence today to serve God, to glorify Him, to do what with that rope that's holding us back? Cut it and take that step. Whatever it is you thought of that to be in the sermon, the fear that is holding you back, God's saying, baby, let's cut that rope today. Because I got a revival to start in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, your challenges that, that face us, that confront us. Because, Lord, your desire for us is for good. Good for our lives. Good that we live to glorify you. Good to use our lives to witness and to minister and to bless others. Your purpose is always, always good. And we know that there is nothing that can separate us from you, spiritually or physically, as your word states. So Lord, give us the simple faith, the faith as big as a mustard seed, to cut these ropes of fear, to make a grand gesture, to step out in faith, to start a revival in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, may you be glorified. Amen.